Today's scripture reading comes to us from John chapter 7, verse 33, and John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one commanded you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I commend you. Go, and from now on, no, from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a time of prayer once more. God, we commit this time to you, Lord. Have mercy upon us and speak to us. Illumine our hearts and minds, your spirit, so that we will be able to walk away uh, from this passage, having seen the beauty of the gospel and your love for us and your amazing and saving grace. Thank you in Christ, let me pray. Amen. You know, this morning as we jump into this passage together, we will be taking a closer look at uh, three things, because there's three things happening in this passage. Uh, number one, there's a conflict. Number two, there's hypocrisy. And number three, scandal. So three points. Point number one, the ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And point number two, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And point number three, and we're going to end with this, the scandal of grace. So let's jump into the first point together, the ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Let me read the first uh, few verses again. They went to each of his town, uh, his own house, and, but, and Jesus, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, in, now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, this they said to him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. When Jesus first began his public ministry in Galilee, it was initially welcomed with so much enthusiasm. Now people started uh, flocking towards Jesus and a growing number of people continued to follow him because they didn't want to miss out on the next great miracle. All eyes were on him. However, as Jesus' kingdom ushering and glory revealing public ministry continued, it was also met with tensions, confrontations, especially from the religious leaders. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, why? And these ongoing confrontations eventually escalated and intensified to the point that these religious leaders, they wanted to arrest and kill Jesus. Now at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees had been 
uh, intentionally plotting against Jesus to arrest him. They really wanted to get rid of him. And do you know why? Because Jesus' public ministry, what he had been doing uh, in their midst, directly threatened the very things that they had been working tirelessly to achieve and uphold. What is that? Their religious qualifications, their religious platforms, their reputable standing in society, which set them apart in the eyes of everyone. You know, during Jesus' days, the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they had this religious celebrity status. They had a following, and everybody wanted to, to be like them, right? But Jesus was doing something that directly contradicted what they were doing, so they got pissed off, right? And what was their exclusive claim? So in a nutshell, they were telling people that only people like us are worthy enough to enter the kingdom of God. Only people like us deserve to enter the kingdom of God. And it was extremely infuriating for them to see Jesus befriending, eating, and spending time with people whom they labeled as sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the people who have been marginalized by society, the social rejects. But in labeling them as sinners, they thought that they weren't sinners because they were living good lives. And they were doing their best to live according to the scriptures, according to the law of Moses. And they intentionally avoided these kinds of people because they were, in their own eyes, unclean, um, unholy, and unworthy. They didn't want to be around. They didn't even want to have anything to do with them. And this is why Jesus' ministry was highly offensive to them. They simply couldn't understand. Like, why would Jesus associate himself with them? Why would Jesus even spend time with people like them? Now here, to build a case against Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees come up with a plan, and and this is what they're doing. They intentionally bring a woman who has been caught in adultery. They drag her in front of Jesus, and she stands accused in the midst of her accuser. She is guilty as charged. But notice what they ask Jesus in verses 4 and 5. You know, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What do you say? What do you say? But here's the thing, and then this is what's really going on here. The scribes and the Pharisees know exactly what the law says about adultery and how to handle this offense, how to handle and resolve a situation like this. Right? I mean, they knew what Leviticus 20.10 said. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the woman who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees, they knew exactly what to do And as you can see, they're not asking Jesus because they don't really know what to do. Then this begs the question, what is their real motive here? Notice how they phrase this question at the end. So what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? 
See, they're not asking for an advice here. They're trying to trap Jesus, hoping that he will say something that is not in accordance to the law so that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus so that they can finally get rid of this guy, have him arrested and possibly killed. But here's what is ironic about this entire situation here. You know, whenever someone gets caught in the act of adultery, according to law of Moses, both the man and woman must be brought in order to be accused. And also there has to be two eyewitnesses and they also must be present so that they can move forward with the trial. But surprisingly, the scribes and the Pharisees only bring the woman. There's no other party. So what's really going on here? Warren Wearsby offers a helpful explanation in light of what's really going on here, and I quote, they would, not likely, uh, they would not be likely to catch a couple in the, in the very act of adultery. So we wonder if the man who never was indicted was part of the scheme. The law required that both guilty parties be stoned, and not just the woman. It does seem suspicious that the man went free. The scribes and the Pharisees handled the matter in a brutal fashion, even in the way they interrupted the Lord's teaching and pushed the woman into the midst of the crowd. The Jewish leaders, of course, were trying to pin Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he said, yes, the woman must be stoned, then what would happen to his reputation as the friend of sinners? The common people would no doubt have abandoned him and would never have accepted his gracious message of forgiveness. But if he said, no, the woman should not be stoned, then he was openly breaking the law and subject to arrest. On more than one occasion, the religious leaders had tried to pit Jesus against Moses, and now they seem to have the perfect challenge. Now you see what Jesus. Now you see what the, the scribes and the religious leaders are doing. They're trying to trap him, and they're trying to build the perfect case to get rid of Jesus. Let's jump to our second point: the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Notice how. Jesus responds to their pressing questions. Verse 6, he does something really strange. He does something really odd and obscure. What does he do? He bends down and starts writing something with his finger on the ground, right? But here's the million-dollar question, and I'm not sure if you guys ever thought about this. What did he write on the ground? What did he actually write on the ground? Even to this day, no one knows. No one knows what Jesus actually wrote on the ground. But let me share two possible interpretations because I do believe that um, these two possible interpretations are very helpful um, in, in, in um, helping us really understand what's going on here. So at first interpretation, um, Herman Ritterboss who is a prominent New Testament scholar, uh, supports the following interpretation, I quote, an ancient interpretation uh, advocated by Ambrose and Augustine and considered acceptable by more recent interpreters refers to Jeremiah 17, 13, where it is said of those who turn away from the Lord that they will be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And that is exactly what is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, right? O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. 
I mean, right before this passage, Jesus actually refers to himself as the living water, right? And this is mentioned in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Now, looking through this um, possible interpretation, perhaps through this specific act of writing with his finger on the ground, Jesus is indirectly calling out and condemning the scribes and the Pharisees, since they are the ones who have forsaken, their, forsaken the Lord. They are the ones who should be put to shame, for they have turned away from the Lord. You know, on the outside, they look holy and righteous, but deep inside, their hearts are filled with wickedness and hypocrisy. Their hearts are so far away from the Lord. Second interpretation. You know, could it be that, as Warren Wearsby claims, Jesus was simply reminding them that the Ten Commandments had been originally written with the finger of God. And this is mentioned in Exodus 31, uh, 18. And he gave to Moses, and when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Perhaps by writing... On the ground with his fingers, Jesus was reminding the scribes and the Pharisees and everyone who was present there that he is God. That he is the one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law for sinners like this woman and also for scribes and the Pharisees who try to live perfectly according to the law, but they never can, right? Perhaps Jesus is telling them, I am the one who came to save you. And I am mighty to save. Perhaps here Jesus is showing them a glimpse of who he really is, which the scribes and the Pharisees just they simply cannot see. Perhaps by writing on the ground with his finger, he's indirect, indirectly calling them out. Do you know who I really am? Do you know who you're messing with? Right? And they still don't get it, right? Verses 7 and 8, and then as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. See, when the scribes and the Pharisees kept pushing Jesus for an answer, and this is what he said to them. He stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone at her. Here Jesus turns the table on them. Because according to the law, Deuteronomy 17.7, 7, the accusers are required to cast the first stones. Verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But here's the thing. They did not want to cast the first stones. In fact, they knew deep inside that they could not. They weren't without sin, and they knew that. And this is why they kept pushing Jesus. They kept pressing Jesus. This is why they intentionally asked Jesus, what do you say? Because they wanted to see Jesus condemning this sinful woman. And this is why they kept accusing. This is why they kept asking. But here, Jesus calls them out. 
Are you without sin? And in doing so, Jesus is actually telling the scribes and the Pharisees, you think you're good, and you think you can actually enter my kingdom? But take a closer look again, because you're just as guilty and sinful and broken as this sinful woman. And Jesus is calling them out here. And here, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and also their wickedness. Did you know that some of Jesus' harshest words were reserved and specifically directed at the scribes and the Pharisees? This is mentioned in Matthew chapter 23, and I want us to actually uh, go, uh, read along uh, together. You know, Jesus repeatedly called them hypocrites in Matthew 28, verse 3. Yeah, For you preach, but you do not practice. Verse 15, he calls them, you are children of hell. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools. Verses 25 and onward, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that the outside also may be clean. Verses 27-28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like white-washed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and Lawlessness. Verse 31, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets that I have sent. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Harsh words. But these words were directed specifically at the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people who thought they had it all put together, that they could actually live the perfect life according to the law, and in doing so, enter and earn their way into the kingdom, right? But Jesus calls them out here, as he does in John chapter 7, 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? I am the one who came to fulfill the law for you. I am the one who is mighty to save. But why do you seek to kill me? Obviously, they were so blinded to it, right? They weren't able to see that. And here, Jesus not only exposes their hypocrisy, but also their wickedness. And Jesus points out their spiritual blindness, and Jesus reveals their desperate need for a Savior. And here, Jesus schools them on what the law can do and cannot do. You know, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20, Romans 4.15, the law actually brings death, not life. The law condemns. The law cannot save. And Jesus wanted to point these things out in order to let the scribes and the Pharisees know the way to the kingdom is not through this, it's only through me, Right? Because no one can perfectly satisfy the, demand and, uh, the demands and the requirements of the law, right? And this is why Jesus had to come. Romans 3.10 reminds us that there's no one righteous, not even one. 
you know, we're all sitting here nicely dressed. And, and we're trying to, you know, even pretend that our lives are good and that we have everything put together. But let's really be honest. You know, what's really going on in your life and in your heart, right? You know, because of the indwelling sin, we will continue to struggle, right? And we will continue to find ourselves giving in, wandering away from our Lord and Savior. I mean, that's just who we are, Right? And notice what Paul says about the law and how it has impacted his life as a Christian in Romans 7, verse 7 through 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Notice what Paul says about the law. The law cannot save. The law brings wrath, death. The law condemns. The law brings knowledge of sin. And this is something that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people, the supposedly the, the good people, the righteous ones, fail to see. Because they thought they are good enough to earn their way into the kingdom by obeying the demands of the law, right? But they were highly mistaken. Now verse 9. Notice how they respond to Jesus when he called them out. Verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. They walked away. That's how they responded. When Jesus called them out in love, in mercy. And that was actually a very loving thing that Jesus can do for the scribes and the Pharisees, right? But they walked away. And you might be wondering, what's the big deal? Yeah, they walked away. But because they walked away, the woman ended up not getting stoned, that her life was spared. In that sense, isn't it good that they actually just walked away? But here's the thing. Do you know what they're really doing here by walking away from Jesus? They're actively rebelling against Jesus. This is their sinful rebellion against Jesus. And here's the sad reality. In calling them out and exposing their hypocrisy and wickedness, Jesus is giving them an opportunity to humbly acknowledge their sins and also their desperate need for a savior. But unfortunately, even at this moment, they still don't get it. And instead of repenting, confessing their sins, and their need for a savior, and turning to Jesus, this is what they do. They all decide to just walk away. They would rather walk away from Jesus. And here we see the wickedness of the human heart. Turn to our last point, the scandal of grace. 
verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You know, instead of condemning her, Jesus redeems her. Jesus saves her. Was was she worthy? Absolutely not. But here we see the scandal of grace. It is scandalous because people like her gets invited in to be part of God's kingdom. And this is why the scribes and the Pharisees were so pissed off because they worked so hard to live the perfect life according to the law. But here we see a woman who did not live according to the law. She broke it all her life. But Jesus says, welcome my child. This is why they were so angry, right? And when the religious leaders were, and along with the Pharisees, were looking at this woman, all they can see is sin, brokenness, unworthiness, get rid of her. That's all they saw. But when everyone walked away and Jesus was just with her one-on-one and gazing into her eyes of hopelessness and helplessness, do you know what Jesus saw? She saw his own daughter whom he came to save and rescue and redeem. No one was left but two of them. And in the words of Augustine, misery and mercy side by side. And Jesus welcomes her into his kingdom. Here we see the scandal of grace, right? Because people like her shouldn't be invited in. Pastor Scott Sauls, regarding these two verses, Sauls, uh, points out something remarkable. And, and I don't want you guys to walk away from this passage having missed it. So let me read what he says. Quote, Jesus left alone with the woman simply says to her two things. I do not condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. The order of these two sentence, sentences is everything. Reverse the order of these two sentences, you'll lose Christianity. Reverse the order, you'll lose Jesus. Notice what he says to her. He doesn't say to her, go and sin no more, and then you won't be condemned. He doesn't say that, right? What does he say to her in love? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And here's the sad thing. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't here to witness this dialogue. What Jesus was saying, these words of grace and mercy and love, because they should have been the ones hearing this, right? That it's not by works, but it's purely by grace, right? And this is what they fail to see all of their lives. And here, this specific act of forgiving and not condemning the sinful woman points to and foreshadows what Jesus will eventually accomplish on the cross once for all for this sinful woman and also for sinners like you and me. Salvation. Redemption. Here we see a small foretaste and a glimpse of what he will ultimately do for broken sinners like you and me, like this woman on the cross, right? It's a sneak preview. 
because the law was given through Moses, as John 1.17 reminds us, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this is why they were so upset, the religious leaders. Why do they, why do they get invited in? They couldn't understand, they couldn't fathom, they couldn't wrap their minds around it, right? And they're the ones shunning people away. You cannot enter this temple unless you put your act together, unless you get rid of X, Y, and Z from your life. Only then can you come and enter and worship with us. I mean, that, they were pushing people away. And Jesus was doing the exact opposite, right? And here's the promise of the gospel. And if you put your faith and hope in Christ, and these words are for you, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Romans 6.14 For sin will have no dominion over you because of what Christ has done for you once and for all on the cross. And you are no longer under the curse. You are no longer under the law. You are no longer under the bondage of sin and death but now you are under grace and in Christ. And that does not change. So if you're in Christ, you can confidently say, even at this moment, I am saved, I am loved, I am forgiven, I am adopted, I belong to God, I'm part of His kingdom, right? You can say that confidently and emphatically, no matter what's going on in your own life, no matter how chaotic and incomplete, messy your life may look like to you, that is the truth. Let me end with a couple of practical applications. Who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? Are you the scribes and the Pharisees? Or do you relate more with this sinful woman caught in sin? Maybe you're both. But don't be discouraged because there's hope for both sides and the scandal of grace actually applies to both sides. Now, if your life resembles that of the scribes and the Pharisees, I do have more questions that I want to ask you. Are you overly judgmental? Are you unforgiving and quick to condemn the people around you? Do you keep a record of sins by the people around you? When you find out about the sins of, other, uh, sins of the people around you that you're not necessarily you know, struggling with at that time, does that kind of make you feel proud and good that you're not going through that? That you feel better? You feel like a better Christian? Do you tend to avoid certain kinds of people? Do you befriend only certain types of people? Do you have a circle of trust and not everyone's invited? 
Who is part of your us? But this division, you know, us versus them, these are the very things that will continue to hinder our gospel witness. And these are the very things, this very division between us and them will destroy gospel communities that God is trying to build in our midst, right? And if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself going all the way to the end of this spectrum where your life looks exactly like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's all about you looking good, living that good Christian life, and you don't care about the people around you. You just want to look better than the people next to you, right? You can care less about what they're going through. And instead of pointing them to Jesus and instead of inviting them to come in so that they can also experience the same mercy and grace that you have experienced for your Lord and Savior, you shun them out. You tell them you cannot come in. You are not welcome here. Paul Tripp writes these challenging words. It's a good reminder. It's a sobering reminder for us. Do you live with a sense of need for the heart-educating classroom of grace? Or do you think of yourself as a grace graduate? Because the religious people, they're the very ones who believed. They were deceived into believing that they didn't need God's grace. That they could actually do everything on their own. Earn salvation. Earn their way into God's kingdom and presence, right? But for some reason, I do believe that we also tend to think that the longer that we have been a Christian, the less we need God's grace. That in our journey of faith as a Christian, we eventually reach a point where we don't need God's grace anymore. And we have been tragically deceiving ourselves to believing this lie. Did you know that the gospel puts all of us on the same level? It doesn't matter if you're an ordained pastor. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for 10 years or you just became a Christian. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter. The gospel all puts us on the same level, broken sinners in need of God's grace. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, and what you've been through. This same grace that was offered to this sinful woman is offered to you. This is God's amazing, saving, transforming, sustaining grace, which we need every moment of our lives, right? And here's an indication that your life, your Christian life, looks more like the scribes and the Pharisees, is you don't feel the need for God's grace in your life, right? Think again. Now, if you feel like your life reflects that of the sinful woman and you can relate more to the sinful woman, let me offer some encouragement to you. I think it's easy for us to sit here and point fingers at her, right? Like, how could you? How could you? Commit adultery, and in doing so, not only wreck your own life and, and the life of the other person, wreck the family and the community, communities, right? How can you possibly do that? It's easy for us to sit here and, and point fingers, and especially if you have never, ever committed adultery, right? 
And in just by comparing, you feel better about yourself. And that's the danger of Christian Phariseeism, right? You just want to look better than the sinner next to you. But I do believe that, that we are just as guilty as this sinful woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Because in our heart of hearts, and especially as we continue to turn away from our Lord in our sinfulness, and as we continue to fall in love with something that is not, in, that is not Jesus, then we're actually committing spiritual adultery. Because in Ephesians 5, Paul describes our relationship with Jesus as that of a spiritual marriage, right? And if you are falling in love with something other than Jesus, you're committing spiritual adultery. And so we're no better. And here's the thing. If this woman from today's passage were to come to our church, let's say, how would she feel? Will she feel safe? Will she uh, feel as if she is surrounded by graceless and unloving religious people? Will she feel alone, hopeless, and condemned as if she is standing in front of a courtroom, guilty as charged? Or will she be able to experience God's grace, love, and mercy through us as we learn to minister to her with the heart of Christ, and as we learn to love like Jesus. That's a serious question that we need to ask ourselves, that we as a church. Did you know that Christians can be, at times, the most graceless people? And this is especially true when our lives look just like the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is why people, broken people, living without Christ, they don't want to come to church. They want to have nothing to do with church. And do you know why? Because when they come to church looking for grace, they often find disgrace. They see a bunch of people just pushing them out. Oh, you're not welcomed here. You're too dirty. You're too unclean. You're too unholy. Fix your life together, and then you can come and worship with us, right? And no wonder why so many people walk away from church feeling hurt, judged, criticized, and misunderstood, and condemned. And here's the sad thing. They never come back. And if the same thing can be said of us as a church, then it's time to repent, and we need to do better, right? Are we as a church becoming that gospel center? community and are we cultivating a culture of grace where people no matter where they've been no matter what they've been through they can come and worship and find the same grace that has been offered to us right Scott Sauls this is what he writes as he challenges us the closer we are to Jesus the further we will be from sin the closer we are to Jesus the closer we will be to sinners I think that's so true. And I really pray and hope that that as we continue our walk with God and as the Holy Spirit continues to, to transform us into the image of Christ, that we will more and more learn to love like Christ. That we will learn to embrace, love, and serve the people around us. That we will learn to see them 
as God would see them, right? Because if Jesus were here today, he would most likely be with the very people that we try to avoid. I really believe that. If Jesus were here today, where would he be? Something to think about, right? You know, throughout the course of our Christian life, I do believe that there will be moments when your life will look more like the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, but there are times where you actually end up in the, the opposite spectrum, where you just find yourself just caught in sin and you look just like this sinful woman and you keep going back and forth, right? That's the nature of the Christian life. This is what we're going to do until Christ comes back and takes us heavenward. And this is normal because that's, this is what's natural to us, right? But we do have a Savior who says, I will remain faithful to you and no one can snatch you out of my hands and you are forever secure in my hands. And here's the thing, and this is the scandal of grace that you know, the people like us, broken sinners who continue to break God's heart, who continue to go back and forth instead of remaining and resting in him, the same grace will continually be offered and this grace never ever runs dry, right? And if you came to, if you came to church this morning feeling like this woman and if you've been going through a season where you're just caught in sin and you don't know what to do, feeling hopeless and so defeated, I pray that you, I really pray and hope that you can walk away from this passage just praising God for the scandalous grace, the scandal of grace that you can hope again in Him, that He will never ever forsake you, right? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more, right? Let me close by reading um, lyrics from the song called Come As You Are by David Crowder. And this is especially for you if you've been feeling like the sinful woman. Maybe you want to come back to God, but you can. Um, pray that these words will comfort you and help you to turn back to Christ who's ready to embrace you with open arms. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who strayed. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can cure. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt, lay down your heart. Come as you are, come as you are fall in his arms. Let's pray. Father, we cannot thank you enough for loving us and for pursuing after us even as we continue to wander away from you. Father, how can we possibly keep from singing praises to you 
the more and more we think about the depth of your love for us, Lord. Father, we do ask for forgiveness if our lives resemble that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Father, would you have mercy upon us, Lord, so that we will be able to see our desperate need for you, and that it is only by grace that we are saved, not through works. It's not about what we do. It's all about what you have done for us, Lord. And help us to learn to love and embrace and serve the people um, like you, Lord. And Father, we, if we have been um, more like the sinful woman caught in sin, just feeling so hopeless and defeated and, and alone, thank you for uh, reminding us that this grace is also for um, broken people like the sinful woman. And thank you for your amazing and saving grace. And we just pray and ask that that all the days of our lives, as long as we are living on this side of heaven, help us to just continue to cling to you all the more and help us to um, never ever lose sight of you and just the beauty of the gospel so that we will just continue to live out the rest of our lives um, in worship, Lord. God, we're so thankful for today. Thank you for reminding us of your amazing grace and your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.